We want to take now the fourth <coughs> section um, of the series we were doing in Calvinism and that's irresistible grace, which is sometimes also called efficacious grace, meaning that it brings about the exact effect that God intends it to do. Efficacious grace. It is efficacious for what it's sent to do or what it, or what it is supposed to do and is sometimes called regeneration. Let me give a brief outline to start with of what we're going to talk about and uh, a few points concerning the, the things we're going to speak about and then go into the main body which will be uh, a lot of quotes from Calvinists concerning uh, what they view about uh, irresistible grace. I've chosen a lot of quotes from a couple of well-known books, uh, especially one really well-known book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray, um, because it's, well, as it was, re- it was suggested to me by a Calvinist himself uh, as one of the uh, leading books on understanding uh, the doctrine of the atonement and redemption. So I'd like to quote a lot from that since it's, he's well-known and he's well-respected. Um, I'd like to talk about what is it first. We're going to give a definition. Then that's number one. I'll give you a brief rundown of the outline. Then number two, we want to look at the necessity for the change. Why does man need to be changed according to the, this particular view? Number three, the nature of the change. Number four, the agents involved in the change. Number five, the results of the change. And then for the last two points, the opposite side. Number six, the problems that are involved with this view. And number seven, can God be defied? Or resisted? Number one, starting with the definition... Um, irresistible grace is many times called saving grace as opposed to common grace, which is something else. We, I don't think we'll be looking at that. Um, saving grace is that movement of God upon the soul of man that brings that soul to salvation. It's the movement of God upon a man that brings that soul to salvation. the change that's brought about is to bring new life. Whereas the person was once dead, spiritually, it is to bring about a new life in the person, and therefore it is called most frequently regeneration. Regeneration, a word meaning to be given new life, or to have new life. And so you'll hear the doctrine of irresistible grace not spoken of usually as the doctrine of irresistible grace, but as the doctrine of regeneration. And many times in our understanding of listening to, listening to people, especially coming from a Calvinistic point of view, we will hear them speak of regeneration and use our understanding of the word regeneration while they actually mean by the word regeneration irresistible grace. And we must understand that, that their view of the word regeneration, the, the definition that they're giving to this, is something that is irresistible and, as we'll see later, is basically metaphysical and not moral. Now, this relates directly to the doctrine of depravity and inability. It relates directly to the doctrine of depravity and inability because they are saying that man is unable to perform anything, any kind of spiritual good whatsoever. 
he's unable to believe, he's unable to repent, he's unable to keep God's law because of, of his total depravity and his inability. And so therefore he needs to be moved upon by God because he can do absolutely nothing for himself, not even repent. We'll see that later. It's not a wild statement. That's what they say. Um, of course, this is only given to the elect for whom Christ died, and so therefore it's tied directly into limited atonement. God only moves upon the people that he has determined that he will save. It is applied to the soul by the Holy Spirit. It's applied to the soul by the Holy Spirit. He is the only agent that is involved. The only agent. They speak of the difference between agency and means. And they say God may use many means, that is, preaching uh, the word of God, um, other Christians. He may use many means, but there is only one agent that is involved in regeneration, and that is the Holy Spirit. Not even the person himself is an agent in regeneration. And then the results of this are just as sure as the action is. God causes the action of regeneration in the person, and therefore the result, that is, repentance, belief, loving God, the knowledge of God, uh, continuing without sin, are just as sure as the action itself is. I would like to go into what they actually say concerning it. That's just a brief rundown of what we're going to look at. That the necessity for the change lies in the fact that people, according to them, are totally morally and spiritually depraved. They can do no spiritual good, as uh, Calvin put it, as we've seen in our lectures in Calvinism. They cannot even aspire to good. Not only can they not do it, they can't even uh, comprehend or desire it. Um, that's what it said. Whether or not we see that in reality is another thing. So the necessity for the change lies in depravity because if man is going to love God, then he is going to have to be changed because by his nature, by the way, in the way that he is born, something that is, is resonant within him already when he is born, he does not love God, he cannot love God, and therefore there must be a change. And it must be brought about by someone apart from himself, and it doesn't happen through repentance and faith. It does not happen through repentance and faith. Those are not the conditions. Something that happens strictly from God. I'd like to read to you the section from the Westminster Confession about this. This is uh, chapter 10, sections 1 and 2 of the Westminster Confession. Chapter 10, sections 1 and 2. All those whom God has pre-appointed, oh, excuse me, all those whom God has predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their will, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein, until, being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call 
and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed by it. Okay? Now, if you're really thinking while you're going through that, you understand on what basis they're saying a man is brought to salvation. Not on a moral basis at all, but on a metaphysical basis. Okay? So that's what the Westminster Confession has to say about this, or some of what it has to say about this particular area of regeneration. That God moves upon the person and enables them to respond to the call that God has given because they are not able unless God does so. I'd like to read to you from John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, concerning the necessity for this change. In uh, chapter 3, the section on regeneration, he says this, It is at this point that we are compelled to ask the question, How can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, whose mind is enmity against God, and who cannot do that which is well-pleasing to God, you see, cannot do that which is well-pleasing to God, and, and answer a call to the fellowship of Christ. Fellowship is never one-sided. It is always mutual. Hence, the fellowship of Christ must involve the embrace of Christ in faith and love. Now, that sounds good. Then he explains it. And how can a person whose heart is depraved and whose mind is enmity against God, notice he uses the word heart and mind, at enmity against God, embrace him who is the supreme manifestation of the glory of God. The answer to this question is that the believing and loving response which the calling requires is a moral and spiritual impossibility on the part of the one who is dead in trespasses and sins. So to the question, can a person respond to God? He says, no. It is a moral and spiritual impossibility for the person to do so. Okay, it's another quote from the same section. Well, it depends on the edition, doesn't it? Yeah, well, this is from, from my edition, which is, I can give you the edition. It's uh, reprinted July 1968. The 1968 edition, page 95. That was where the quote was just from. Now I'm going to read from page 96. God's grace reaches down to the lowest, lowest depths of our need and meets all the exigencies of the moral and spiritual impossibility which inheres in our depravity and inability. And that grace is the grace of regeneration. In other words, because of our, our nature, the way we are born, something that's not something that we choose, but something that we are, we are impo- it's impossible for us. We are totally depraved and unable, and therefore God has to move on us in order to make us be saved. Okay? Um, Yeah, I'd like to read you another quote concerning the necessity of this. Regeneration, this is page 106, chapter 4, Repentance and Faith. Regeneration is inseparable from from its effects, and one of the effects is faith. Notice that it doesn't put faith as a condition for regeneration, but what, it's an effect of regeneration. Without regeneration, it is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. But when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. I'm going to read that again. Without regeneration, it is morally and spiritually impossible 
for a person to believe in Christ. But when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. So we see that man is un because man is unable to repent or to keep God's law or to believe or to embrace Christ, because he is unable to do so by his nature, by his depravity, then God moves upon man with a divine force to bring him new life. It's not on the basis of influence. It's not on the basis of condition. It is on the basis of divine force. Man is forced to have new life. And that grace is applied to him. Now I want to take a look at the nature of the change that's taking place. The nature of the change that's taking place. And we'll see that it's essentially a change of nature, not of choice or of motive, because those are results of the change. Choice, a change of choice, and a change of motive are results of the change, and they are not the conditions for the change. Therefore, it's a metaphysical and not a moral change in man. Something is taking place in the nature of man and not in his choices or in his motives. I'll read you another um, quote. page 106 of uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Regeneration, and he's giving a definition here, regeneration is the renewing of the heart and mind. And the renewed heart and mind must act according to their nature. The renewed heart and mind must act according to their nature. So he's saying, by a law of necessity, because he uses the words must act, according to their nature, by a law of necessity that when the heart and mind are changed, then the actions have to follow that. Okay? And we're going to look at some, some of the actions that are involved in that a little bit later, some of the results of the change. I'll read you another quote. This is from um, The Reform Doctrine of Predestination by Bettner, page 165. His section on efficacious grace. The regeneration of the soul is something which is wrought in us, not an act performed by us. It is an instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. It is not even a thing of which we are conscious at the moment it occurs, but rather something which lies lower than consciousness. In other words, you're not even involved in it, not even knowing that it's taking place when it takes place. Thus the statement, we do not believe and therefore we are saved, but we believe because we have been saved. Okay, now we'd like to take a look at the agents that are involved in the change. The agents that are involved in the change. Now, this is very important because the Calvinist very, very frequently speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that he has to speak so much of the work of the Holy Spirit is because that's all that there is that's operating in man. You see? And anything that man does is a result of that work because he would not and could not, the moral and spiritual impossibility, to use Murray's words, he would not and could not do anything of himself. And so therefore, he must be completely motivated by the Holy Spirit or he would not produce any spiritual good at all. 
so they talk very much of the agency of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit is involved, and not even the person who is being changed is considered an agent. He is considered completely passive in the act of regeneration. It is his job to repent and believe afterwards, but of course then they say that that's just a natural result and it must follow. And so then we would ask the question, if that's his job and it absolutely must follow, then can that be accredited to him uh, either? Okay? Let's look at some of the ideas that are involved in agency. Again, from Redemption, Accomplish, and Applied. It is the Holy Spirit, this is page um, 99, it is the Holy Spirit who affects this change. He affects it because he is the source of it. He affects it by the mode of generation. And since he affects it by this mode, he is the sole author and active agent. He is the sole author and active agent. And again, it has often been said that we are passive in regeneration. This is a true and proper statement. So you see, man has nothing to do with his regeneration, which basically says man has nothing to do with his salvation. But blessed be God, but, but blessed be God that the gospel of Christ is one of sovereign, efficacious, irresistible regeneration. If it were not the case that in regeneration we are passive, the subjects of an action of which God alone is the agent, there would be no gospel at all. For unless God, by sovereign, operative grace, had turned our enmity to love and our disbelief to faith, we would never yield the response of faith and love. You see? What it, there's a very important thing to be thinking there when you, when you read these things because it says God turns our enmity to love and our disbelief to faith. And what that's basically saying is unbelief and, or unbelief and faith, enmity and love are not choices. They are something that is metaphysical because God can directly, forcefully change them. So therefore, they're not moral. They're in the metaphysical realm. And they're saying something very important about man's choices. They're saying basically that they're not moral in nature, but that they are metaphysical, only results of a particular nature. And you cannot escape that, escape them saying that moral or evil is metaphysical and not moral. Charles Hodge, noted theologian, says this concerning the soul in regeneration. It is the subject, that's the soul, is the subject and not the agent of the change. The soul cooperates or is active in what precedes and in what follows the change, but the change itself is something experienced and not something done. So you see, the person is completely passive, and the Holy Spirit is the only agent, they say, that is involved. And of course, to support these things, verses are, are used that say that the Holy Spirit is an agent involved in the action of regeneration, which is true. They quote scriptures like, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. See? Now, is that saying that the Holy Spirit is the only agent, or is that saying the Holy Spirit is an agent? And we'll look at some verses later that show that there are other agents involved, directly involved in regeneration, according to the Scripture. 
Now, this is, I think, is one of the most interesting parts of the discussion altogether, and that is, what are the results of the change? What are the results of the change? Now, we would think the results of the change, if it's, if it's taking place on a moral level, would be the result of our choice. But that isn't so with the idea of regeneration or irresistible grace. It is that God metaphysically changes something in our nature, as we've seen from some quotes already, and then therefore, the results must take place. We've seen a quote on that too. The, the actions that follow, or the things that follow, must take place. It's a law of necessity that they must take place. Because the change is metaphysical, then those actions have to follow what we would call actions. I don't know if you can really call it that in the light of some of the ways they speak of it. Again, in re Redemption Accomplished and Applied, we read this. It's on page 101. Now this abiding seed, he's referring to the, to the um, use of the word seed in First uh, John. Now this abiding seed alludes clearly to the divine impartation which took place in the divine begetting. It is this divine begetting which it, with its abiding consequence that is the cause of not doing sin. It's got cause in italics. Hence, regeneration is logically and causally prior to the not doing sin. And again, John tells us that he cannot sin because he is begotten of God. An express statement to the effect that regeneration is the cause why this person cannot sin. So the reason why a person cannot sin is that that person is regenerated. The order cannot be reversed. So that he's pushing here for the idea that once you become a Christian, you can no longer sin. Okay? Um, another quote I think you'll find quite interesting. That was 101, wasn't it? Okay, the result there, he says, is that the person cannot sin. That's one of the results of regeneration. You cannot sin. Um, on page 103, says this, it should be speci specially noted that even faith that Jesus is the Christ is the effect of regeneration. Faith that Jesus is the Christ is the effect of regeneration. So any scripture that you would quote that would say that you must believe in Jesus in order to be saved, such as with, if you will openly admit with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you think that that means that there's a condition upon salvation that you must confess and believe, it's really not a condition. It's only the statement that if you really are saved, that is what you will do. I would ask the question, is that what it says? We are, and this is another quote from page 103, we are not born again by faith or repentance or conversion. We repent and believe because we have been regenerated. We are not born again by faith or repentance or conversion. We, are, we repent and believe because we have been regenerated. So here, he says faith, repentance, and conversion are the effect of regeneration and not um, something that we do. And again, on page 104, he says this. Hence, 
we shall have to conclude that in the other passages, 2.29.4.7.5.1, the fruits mentioned, doing righteousness, the love, love and knowledge of God, believing that Jesus is the Christ, are just as necessarily the accompaniments of regeneration as are the fruits mentioned in 3.9.5.4 and 18. This simply means that all of the graces mentioned in these passages are the consequences of regeneration, and not only consequences which sooner or later follow upon regeneration, but fruits which are inseparable from regeneration. That is, doing righteousness is the effect of regeneration, the result of regeneration. It's not something that you do. The love and knowledge of God is something that is irresistibly given to you. Believing that Jesus is the Christ is an irresistible and irrevocable result of what uh, regeneration brings to your life. That's the grace that God gives to you. So let's take a, a, a brief look again at what they're actually saying. Now, I wanted to give a lot of quotes because I didn't want it to be... Uh, I didn't want you to think that I was just saying a lot of things off the top of my head, but that that's what they actually say. Um, so we, we looked at the Westminster Confession, what it said concerning regeneration, and we see that the necessity for the change is because a man is totally morally depraved. He cannot do that which is any spiritual good at all. Totally unable, as well as unable to repent. The nature of the change is that it is, a, it is one of metaphysics. God changes the nature of the person rather than it's being a change of motive or a change of the direction of life by the person. It is a, it, the nature of the change is that the action of the Holy Spirit comes to the person and changes their nature. Okay? The agents involved, the Holy Spirit, is the only agent that is involved. Even the person themselves is passive in regeneration, and in one quote that we looked at, is not even aware when regeneration takes place. Okay? And then the results of the change are things like the person cannot sin, the person repents, has faith, is converted, loves God, has the knowledge of God, or believes that Jesus is the Christ, because they have been regenerated, and not because they choose to do so. In other words, those things that, are, that we commonly call actions, that is to repent, to believe, to love God, to have the knowledge of God, those things which we commonly call actions, they would say are results of regeneration and cannot really be attributed to the human will. They cannot be attributed to the human will. And they say that to do that, to attribute those to the human will, is to rob God of his glory because you've involved somebody else in the act of salvation. Now let's look at some of the problems that are involved in this. I may have to draw on the board for this one. Of course, the, the major problem that we've looked at already is there's a confusion between metaphysics and morals. Metaphysics having to do with being, morals having to do with choice, which we see most consistently is, and most constantly are two completely separate things. My hand and what I choose to do with my hand are two different things. If I chop my hand off and put it over across the room on the floor, it's a hand. And you cannot attribute any moral nature to it. Paul says in Romans 14, there is no thing that is unclean in itself. God created all things and said, it is very good. Okay? So things in themselves have no moral value. We understand that quite commonly to be so. Augustine had a problem with thinking that um, physical things could be evil, which he brought in from Manichaeanism. 
um, so that causes some confusion. And when we mix metaphysics and morals and get them squashed together, we always have problems. Remember the one quote that said that God causes the change from love, from enmity to love, and from disbelief to faith. And that is squashing metaphysics and morals together. And so it always causes problems when we do that. When you put being and choice in the same category. Okay? God created all things, but did not create evil. Because evil is not a thing. Evil is a choice. And the first evil was originated in the mind of the enemy. Okay? In the will of the enemy. That's where it originated, actually. So then there's a constant, constant mix-up of metaphysics and morals, and it is not a metaphysical change that is taking place in man, but it is a moral change that is taking place in man, in accordance with what I, I can, only thing I can see from the scripture is that man changes his choices. When it says to repent, the, act, the Greek word means change your mind, and it is a command addressed to the person, never indicating in any way that it is impossible for them to do so, and also indicating that it must be possible because it's on pain of damnation. If you do not do so, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, Jesus said. And it's something addressed to the person, a command to the person. Of course, the Calvinist would say here, as we've seen before, that just because God commands you to do so does not mean that you are able to do so. And you are still responsible even though you are not able. Okay? So the... Um, squashing together of metaphysics and morals has a, is, a, is constantly done in these uh, considerations by Calvinists of this particular area. Now, there's also a confusion of the grounds and the conditions for salvation. And we always have to keep those separate in the same way that we keep metaphysics and morals separate. Can we make it with a chord here? There are the grounds and there are the conditions of salvation. Okay, and we'll see that one of the other problems is that the, uh, the Calvinist would, re would uh, reject this idea altogether because he says that conditions are works. And we'll see that what the differences between conditions and works are too. Okay, the grounds of salvation is the basis upon which we can be saved. And if God had never extended grace to us, we would not be able to be saved. Because the only thing that God was required to do was to uphold the law and to act in accordance with justice. That's the only thing that he was really required to do, was to uphold justice. Now when we talk about grace, then we talk about getting something that we don't deserve. Or God did something for us that he did not have to do. He extended grace to us in saying, I do want you to be forgiven, and I do want to bring you to a place where I can forgive you, which involved the atonement of Jesus and, the, and bringing us to the place where he could justly give us that grace. Now, grace then is the grounds or the basis or the reason for salvation. And if God had never extended grace, we could never be saved. See? And so the ground or the basic um, reason for salvation is outside of ourselves. And we can never claim any glory or any part in salvation as far as providing grounds for our own salvation. Now, the, the Calvinist rightly rejects the idea of works, which Paul speaks about, because the Jews constantly 
tried to make works the grounds of salvation. And because they tried to make it the grounds of salvation, Paul very consistently came against that and said, it is not by works, it is by grace. But he also said, it is not by works, it is by faith. You see? Isn't that interesting? Because faith has to do with our part, not God's part. Okay. So the conditions of salvation are different from works in the sense that we are not providing any kind of ground for salvation in believing in Christ. We are only meeting what is absolutely necessary for God to extend to us His grace or for us to be able to receive His grace. So it's not in any way a part of the grounds of salvation. It is only the condition upon which God can save us. And that is faith. Or in the words of the scripture, it is by grace through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. Grace being the ground, condition, uh, the conditions being faith. For by grace are you saved through or by means of faith. And that's in Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. Now in the Bible, and we've seen this before, I think, in one of the lectures, uh, in the Bible... Paul contrasts grace and works and faith and works, but he never contrasts grace and faith. He contrasts grace and works and faith and works, but he never contrasts grace and faith. Whereas the Calvinists will frequently say, if you think that faith is able to save you or that you're saved on the basis of faith, then, you're, then it is basically a work and we are not saved by works, and therefore the Calvinists contrast grace and faith. Do you understand the logic in that? If he says that faith is a work that you perform, and it is not by grace, it is by works, he is basically saying it is not by faith, it is by grace. And so he contrasts in that, in that little bit of logic there, he contrasts grace and faith, which is something that Paul the Apostle never does. He contrasts grace and works and faith and works, but never grace and faith. He says it is by grace through faith. So on the basis of the fact that God has extended grace to us, we can believe and therefore receive that grace. Now, one quote that we had from uh, John Murray said that uh, fellowship is always a mutual action. It takes two to do it. That's interesting. They said it's a mutual action, and he turned right around in the next breath, next sentence, and said, God therefore makes us have fellowship with him. Quite an interesting statement, isn't it? It sounds good when you, when, you, when you talk about it, when you say that fellowship is mutual. You have to have two people to have fellowship. That's true, I agree with that. But the reason you have to have two people is because if one person is forced to do so, who is going to see any value in love at all if it's forced? And yet they very clearly said that love is the result Loving God is the result of regeneration, the result of the force of God, of His grace upon us, and not an action that we perform ourselves. And so therefore, does that love have any meaning? Only the result of the force of God upon us. Okay? So we have to keep a, a clear distinction between the grounds of salvation and the conditions of salvation. So that when we say that a person has faith and therefore he is saved, we are not in any way supporting the idea that a man is saved by works. Because works can never be the ground of salvation as the, as the uh, Jews tried to make it. 
they can never be the ground of salvation. And at that point, we agree with the Calvinists, but we would not agree in calling faith a work. Because there's a difference between a condition and a work, and that's another thing that we have to keep separate. I think that's my next point, as a matter of fact. Yeah, there's a big difference between condition and work. When you work in the Jewish idea of working for your salvation, what you are trying to do is you are trying to obey the law of God in order that God may extend grace to you. Not as a condition, but in the sense of debt. And Paul the Apostle very clearly pointed this out in, in Romans chapter 4, when he says, Now therefore to the person who works, then salvation is given to him as a, as a matter of debt, rather than of grace. He contrasts works and grace here. It's a matter of debt then that God has towards you. And that was the idea that the Jews used, was that God is now indebted to give me salvation because I have kept his law. Whereas when you take the idea of a condition, it is that since we cannot bring grace to ourselves, or we cannot save ourselves by our work, therefore we must meet conditions in order to allow God to save us. But it has not to do with earning anything from God or putting God in a place of owing, something, owing us something, as if he were a debtor to us. It only has to do with being able to receive from God what we need in order to be able to save us. Is it clicking? The difference between a condition and a, and a work? Okay. The Jewish idea of work was that because I kept the law, I therefore make God indebted to me. That he must give me salvation. And therefore, work is contrary to grace because grace is something that is freely given even though it's not deserved. Work is saying... I keep God's law, and therefore he owes me salvation. Okay? But when it says that it's by grace through faith, faith then is not a work because he says it's by grace. That's the grounds of it. It's through faith because that's only the condition that needs to be brought about in order that God can extend that grace to you. Now the, of course, the um, grounds and conditions are squashed together into grace in the Calvinistic system. And they rightly reject the idea that the grounds and the conditions are squashed together into faith. Remember this? We have grounds up here. Grace. And then here we have faith. Now the Calvinists squish the two together like this into grace. The grounds and the conditions are involved in grace. And they rightly reject the idea, which they call Pelagianism, which I'm not sure that Pelagius actually said it, but they call Pelagianism or more commonly today they call Arminianism, that the grounds and the conditions are squashed together into faith. But we're not saying that either. We're not saying that man provides the grounds for his own salvation because of his faith. We're not saying that because a man believes that therefore makes God indebted to save him. Not at all. God is not indebted to save us. The only thing that he justly must do is carry out the sentence of the law. Okay? But he's provided a way that that need not be carried out as we saw in the last lecture. So if we keep these separate, that the grounds are grace and the conditions are faith, then we keep that clear in our minds and we don't have the problem of saying we are saved by works. Now that's one of the biggest, um, biggest problems that the Calvinists have with the, what they call the Arminian system, which I'm beginning to see more and more that I'm not Arminian. 
um, according to their definition, that they say that we are we say that we are saved by our faith, and therefore we are saved by works. See? Big difference. I say, no, I'm not saved by faith as far as the, as far as the grounds are concerned. I am saved by grace as far as my grounds, the grounds of my salvation, the basis for it. And faith is only the thing that's necessary to bring that grace to me, that God can justly extend it to me. Extend that grace. Uh, of course, we would in no way say that man is saved by works, but it's very explicit in the scripture. Um, you can only fulfill your obligations. That's all you can do. So works can never save you. Oh, you They're concerned that I'm uh, twisting the cord here. Okay, I'll tuck it away here. So he doesn't go frantic. Okay? Um, we were talking about, you can do no more than your obligation. You can love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and you can completely fulfill that every moment of your life, and you can never do more than your obligation. Because if you are able, and you understand that you are to do a certain thing, and you see that as your responsibility, then if you fulfill it, you've only fulfilled your obligation. Jesus said, after you've done all that you were supposed to do, then sit down and say, we are unprofitable servants, for we have done that which was our duty to do. You can never fulfill more than your obligation. You can only love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you can never build up a plus sign to help cancel out anything negative that you've done, speaking of sin. That's a negative. Okay? You can never build up a plus sign. Therefore, works can never save you because you can never do more than your obligation. If a person repents and from that time on, for the rest of their life, fulfills their obligation completely, that was only what was expected of them to start with. Was that they should love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, their neighbor as, their, as themselves, all day long, with every action that they perform, that they were to do that. And so you can never build up a plus sign so that you can balance out the past. And that was the Jewish idea of works. Is that I can build up a plus sign by keeping God's law and by doing, doing good things, I can make a plus sign that will help balance out the past and therefore God will owe me salvation. Okay. Sort of a chalkboard system in heaven. You know, One point for you, one point against you. That type of thing. Okay. Debit credit system. Now, that was their idea. Now a condition can in no way, can in no way, because it's only a part of your obligation to repent if you've done something wrong, since it's only a part of your obligation, a condition that is met can never build up any kind of a plus sign because it is part of your obligation as well. That if you have done something wrong, you are obligated to repent. And so you can never build up with repentance and faith, you can never build up a plus sign either because that's a part of your obligation. Okay? So then, no works can save. Okay. No works can save. We can only be set free from the penalty of the law that we've broken by God's grace. That's the only way we can be set free. It's by God's grace. It's the only ground. Now, another problem that we'd like to look at is, is the Holy Spirit the only agent that the Scripture says is involved in conversion, uh, regeneration, being born again, or whatever you want to call it. And the um, Calvinists very frequently relate 
the idea of regeneration to the, the new birth, of course, we would associate it with that, or conversion, what they call conversion, and what the scripture calls conversion. And so in calling it conversion, being born again, uh, it's only they associate it with the same scriptures as well, so I'm not going off their track to do, do this. In Psalm 19 and verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting or restoring the soul. Therefore, the word of God in Psalm 19 and verse 7 is pointing out that there is an agent called the word of God, the law of the Lord, that is involved in converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So there is one other agent than the Holy Spirit that is involved. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Here's another statement. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. The living and abiding word of God. Give you another, uh, that, that was concerning the word of God being an agent in our conversion. Give you another one um, concerning men being agents in our conversion. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 15. By the way, the last one I gave was 1 Peter 1.23. I don't think I gave the reference. 1 Peter 1.23. In 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says this, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Okay? In the King James Version it says, I have begotten you through the gospel. Okay? Now, if you want to get really sticky with that and say, well, one is the means and the other is the, is the um, agent, then you'd have to say, Paul's the agent and the gospel is the means. I have begotten you through the gospel. So you still have Paul as the one who is begetting. So when they say that only the Holy Spirit brings about new birth, I would have to say, Paul the Apostle said that he did too. What do you do with that? I have begotten you through the gospel. Uh, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 says this. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back or converts him, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you convert someone who has turned away and it uses the, the man as the agent in conversion... And so the Bible does speak of other agents that are involved in conversion. And so to pick a series of scriptures that refer to the Holy Spirit as the agent is not to say, because he is an agent in, con in conversion or regeneration or whatever, is not to say that he is the sole agent in conversion. And we've seen some scriptures that show that the Word of God and that men are sometimes called agents in conversion as well. And lastly, let's take a look at can God be defined? Can God be resisted? Now, I have um, stolen these scriptures. <laughs> um, I need to give credit to where it's due. From God's Strategy in Human History in a section called Fight or Fake. Fight or Fake. God's Strategy in Human History, and I just took the references. 
have my own comments to make about the verses. So I took the references from them. Let them do the research for me. Okay? There, there are two Greek words for the will of God, as it is translated. One means the counsel of God, and the other one means the desire of God. And the first one we're going to look at is his counsel can be defined. Luke chapter 7 and verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose or counsel for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. Can God be resisted? Okay, that's concerning the counsel of God. Now here's another interesting scripture that has to do with the counsel of God. It uses the same word. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing, or it's not in his counsel, or not in his purpose, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Okay, that's Second Peter 3, 9. It is his counsel that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now we know that the Calvinists, as we've seen before, the Calvinist says that that only refers to the elect. Okay. I have questions about that as to whether or not the uh, context warrants, warrants that. Okay. But um, regardless of that particular point, it says he's not willing, and it's not his counsel for any to perish, but for all to come to repent. It is not his purpose for any to perish. Now, do people perish? So therefore, is his counsel resistant? Is his counsel always done? No. Why would Jesus say, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven if it were already constantly being done? And this is another point that many Calvinists will make, is that everything that is being done is God's will, even the evil that is taking place. How are we to pray, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven if it's already being done? Jesus may, may as well have made the statement, your will is being done in earth as it is, as it is in heaven, rather than making a prayer out of it. It could not be a request in that sense. Okay, let's look at some scriptures that talk about God's will. This is the other word, his desire, being defied. I'll read you some verses and give you the references. Matthew 23, 37. Now, Calvinists have answers to these verses when you bring them up. But the, I found that the answers that they give in their answers... They never try exegetically to disprove the actual words that are used in the scriptures because they actually say that God is defined. What they will do is appeal to another portion of their system. And I'll show you how they answer some of these. Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Okay? Now, it obviously indicates, from just the way the words are, that they did not do something that God wanted them to do. Now, if God has his will done irresistibly in the earth, then they, he could never say that. Now, the answer is given to this by the Calvinists, and you see how this makes an appeal to total depravity, which is a part of their system they assume to be true, they, they, you know, they feel that they can support that exegetically as well. 
but they assume that to be true, and they prove it on the basis of another point that they accept that might not be accepted by someone else, and that is total depravity. They will say, you were unwilling. Of course, the reason that they were unwilling to come to God was because of their total moral depravity, and that's why they don't come. Not because they choose not to come to God, but because they can't come. You see? And only by asserting another area of their own system can they prove that. Because it actually says, you were unwilling. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Therefore, God's will was not done in that case. As the next verse that goes on to say, your house has left you desolate. Luke chapter 13 and verse 34. I think it says the same thing. Yes, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Luke 13, 34. Okay, Matthew 12, 50. Matthew 12, 50. For whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And of course, the, the way that they would answer that is in the same way they answered the last one, is that whoever does it is one thing to say. Why a person does it or does not do it is something else. Because they would not do it because they're totally depraved, and then they would do the will of the Father because, excuse me, because God moves upon them, forces them to be saved, and then, I mean, those sound like strong words, and you probably wouldn't hear a Calvinist saying, God forces people to be saved, because it's very strong, but what are they actually saying anyway? They're saying it's by force and not by influence. So we may as well use the word. Okay. Mark 3 and verse 35 says the same thing. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark 3:35. Then Matthew 7:21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there are some who are doing the will of God and some who are not because some enter and some don't. Okay? Now, chapter 4, or chapter 4, number 4, John seven seventeen. John seven seventeen. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Now, there's a contrast between the will of the person and the will of God, saying that they may not be the same. The will of the person and the will of God may not be the same. Okay? Number five. 1 John 2.17 says, and the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. 
1 John 2.17. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Let me ask you a question. Can a Christian perform sexual immorality? Then why did Paul write to Christians in churches saying, Stop being immoral. He commanded them to stop being immoral. Right? And so if that means that a Christian can perform that sin, he can be outside of the will of God. Because it says, for this is your will, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And yet Paul had to write to churches and say, stop your sexual immorality. Don't let it be named once among you. That's become safe. Interesting, he says, don't let it be named among you. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 17 through 19, says, Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do Christians ever fail to pray without ceasing? Do Christians ever fail to give thanks in everything? Do Christians ever quench the Spirit? And yet it says those things are the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. And so there are times when the will of God is not done. Acts chapter 7, this is number 7, Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Who, who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears? are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, if God comes upon us with irresistible grace, and the Bible says that those people resisted the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, for you are doing just as your fathers did. If he cannot be resisted, why does it say that they were resisting the Holy Spirit? Okay, so we're taking a look then at the, the nature, the necessity, the agents involved, and the result of regeneration, what is called regeneration, or irresistible or efficacious grace. Um, Acts, 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 uh, Acts uh, 751. Acts 7.51. We'll have discussion now of the different points, questions, and we'll try to repeat the questions so the people can understand uh, when they're listening to the tape what the question is. Okay. If we don't repeat the question, Rosie, would you go? And that means repeat the question. Okay, questions? Um, the question is, uh, how can you give a, uh, an explanation of backsliding or apostasy if there is irresistible grace? Well, this is exactly what brings us to the fifth point of Calvinism, which is called perseverance of the saints. There is no backsliding. Um, 
if you if a person seems to have fallen away, they either never were really converted. Um, well, that's the only thing you really can say that they never were regenerated, that they were not among the elect, or that they tried to um, perform Christian actions, and they may be they may really be elect, but God has not moved upon them yet if they've fallen away. And the idea of apostasy uh, is only um, the appearance of falling away from the faith. It looks as if you were a part of the faith and then you fell away, whereas you really were not converted and you were not a part of the elect if you actually fall away from the faith because you were not elected. You weren't really converted. So the only thing you could say then if a person appears to have fallen away is that they really never were converted. Better. They're still falling away, but they'll come back. But, but they never. No, they don't lose their faith. Could just be a Christian who's living in a backslidden state, and they will come back to the world. Or even if they die in that backslidden state, they will still be redeemed. If you carry, if you carry it to its extreme, which some Calvinist authors do, they will say that th- that backsliding is a part of the will of God for them as well. That sin. Okay, next question. The statement was then, you could never really pray for a person to be saved um, because you couldn't alter God's mind and will concerning their election. That's what you mean, right? I'll let Floyd answer that. Yeah, that's right. In fact, I read a book by one very uh, famous author and Calvinist who said that we should never say publicly or never say to anybody we're counseling that they could be saved we never know if they're elected or not. So it not only means you can't pray for people to be saved, but you can't even tell people they can be saved because you don't know if they're the elected one. So it means that in evangelism, you should never go around telling people that they can be born again. You can call people to repentance, this author said, because it doesn't hurt people to repent even if they can't be saved. Um, another thing that might be added to that is that... Really makes evangelism <laughs> exciting, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, another thing that might be added to that is the um, Calvinists many times say, and this is in the first part of the book, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, says that the Arminian, when he prays, Lord, save this person, is basically praying as a Calvinist. And I have news for J.I. Packer, I never pray that, Lord, save this person. Because that implies two things. Number one, that the salvation of man is dependent only upon God's will, which I do not believe. And number two, that God isn't doing everything that he can to save the person and I have to twist his arm to try to get him to save somebody. Anyway, so I never pray that kind of prayer, Lord, save the person. I would pray for influence upon the person, but I would never say the words, Lord, save that person, because it implies that God doesn't want to already. brought up um, after repeat this that you can pray at, for the person but that was already determined basically that that would be a part of their um, salvation anyway and that God had already determined and as it's put in the phrase of the Calvinist God not only predestines the result but he also predestines the means 
um, that is predestinated as well. So um, it's many times viewed that way, that when you've prayed, of course, if you pray for the wrong person, the Holy Spirit will not regenerate them anyway. And so your prayer just simply won't be answered. Okay, another question? Okay, I'll repeat the question and then Floyd can answer it. That why, why then does the Calvinist pray? Do they see any reason to pray um, in, in this respect? It's been explained to me that the reason that we pray is it's more for our good because it brings us to a place of affirming the will of God. But it doesn't really um, do anything for the individual because God's already predetermined what's going to be done. Um, another point on that is that um, even though, see, when the scripture says we're commanded to pray, we pray because it is our responsibility whether or not it does any good. In the same way that man is commanded to repent whether or not it will ever do any good because God may not give him the grace to repent. He is still responsible to do so even though he may not even be able to do so and whether, whether or not it will do any good. And so, we, since we are commanded to pray, we therefore must pray, and we are responsible to pray, even if it will never do any good, even if the prayer will never be answered because God has determined not to answer it. And so our responsibility is not connected necessarily with our ability. I have a uh, kind of technical point, but I think it might be an important one for some people who might, want to, who might be listening to this. Mm -hmm. um, God, you made the statement, God is, is not indebted to save man because he believes. Um, In a sense of work. Yes. Um, and I was thinking, uh, some, I have some friends who would say, well, if God has said that man should uh, believe, then therefore God has a moral obligation to respond to man if he believes. So I think you would probably agree, wouldn't you, that if man does believe sincerely, God has a moral responsibility mm -hmm. to keep his word to that man, although that is not the basis for salvation, it's rather God's word that's at stake, so to speak. Right. Bert? Okay, the question is, what do they say concerning the verse? That's what the Calvinists say concerning the verse, that God desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I think this was covered during the last lecture. Uh, and that is that the verses that are, appear to be general are only trying to emphasize the fact that both Jews and Gentiles can be saved. And by the words, all men, the world, all people, uh, whosoever, and so forth, does not imply every single individual, because not all men will be saved, but only implies the body of the elect, or that Jews and Gentiles as well can now be saved. So that the verses, some verses in the scripture that say all men do not mean literally all men, but have to be interpreted according to context. Of course, one of the questions I have on that is, many of the contexts in which they say it refers to, um, it refers to only the elect or Jews and Gentiles, does not uh, support that from the context. 
it appears to be only general and can only be taken that way. Another question. Okay. The question is, what is my interpretation of changing a heart of stone to a heart of flesh? I think I'll let Floyd answer it. The Jeremiah passages. Question uh, my memory a little bit. What are you speaking of? And God can change hearts of stone to be hearts of flesh. Show that it's something that is a uh, an effect of regeneration. And what would be the response that we would give from a say moral government point of view? Our response, my response, would be that um, there's often uh, examples in the book of Jeremiah where God tells Jeremiah to tell the people that they have hearts of stone, but if they will respond to him, he will give them hearts of flesh. And there's never any indication that he will arbitrarily change a heart of uh, a stone to a heart of flesh, that there's always conditions to be fulfilled, which include repentance, always repentance. I mean, this is why the prophets warn, if you will do this, God will do this. If you will do this, God will do that. In fact, in Jeremiah 18, it even goes so far as to say, if the people repent, God will be removed, his promise to send punishment. So we see then that the decrees of God are often conditional upon man's response, which of course is anathema to many people. They don't believe that that's really right because then man is earning things from God. We say no, that it's God, a man living up to the conditions of what God says and that he's not living up to those conditions. And when he does, then that relieves God of the responsibility to send punishment. Maybe Mike has some more comments. Another thing of which you have to be careful is when it, it, that is a verse of scripture that shows that God is an agent in the change that takes place in a person's heart. That never supposes that he is the only agent uh, in the change that takes place in a person heart, person's heart. And that was what Floyd was talking about, is that if the person will do this, then God can change their heart. And so um, the person also, as well as, an, is an agent in regeneration. The Holy Spirit is also an agent in regeneration. I think one of the most helpful things for me to understand uh, the flow of history um, under God's sovereignty is not that history is static, but rather that it's dynamic, and that God is is a, is a God who is actively participating in history, who has not mapped everything out. There are certain things that He is going to do. He has those mapped out, so to speak. But within that, uh, those are like large banks, so to speak, on a river. And within the banks, there are many, many things that are variable and depend upon man. And what man does will determine God's response. And he's flowing in history and he's responding. And that makes the Bible come alive. And it makes God's sovereignty and his infiniteness far more meaningful. Because here, here you have a God then who is, who is daily, hour by hour, minute by minute, responding to what's going on in the hearts of men. And he's, he's got three and a half billion, four billion people who are responding to him in different ways. And he at the same time is responding with love and joy and judgment to all these people. 
and one disobeys and he's a Christian and he's wanting him to go over here to do something and he doesn't do it so he's got to move another person in to take their place and meanwhile arrange circumstances to bring this person to a state of repentance and he's doing all this at once, three and a half billion people. Well, I don't see that as all being a part of a computer program. I see that as being a, as a personal God who's got infinite capabilities of responding to people who he's made with tremendous abilities, the abilities to rebel against him, which makes man really noble and really significant. As Mike pointed out this morning, if God moves upon us and we can't resist that, then that, all my nobility is gone down the tree. Okay, Fred. I was responding to the question. The question has been stated. What insufficiency was seen by Augustine, Calvin, Luther, those particular, holding that particular view? What was seen that was necessary to be able to support this? Is that uh, your understanding? Yeah. That they would have to say these kind of things in order to be able to support those things. Well, um, one explanation that I've heard for the idea of inability and the, its seeming, its seeming um, grip on people's minds is that many times emotional states are confused with states of the will so that they think that God holds them responsible to have certain emotional states. And of course the emotional states are not subject directly to the will, only indirectly. And then as a person sees himself, quote, unable to control himself or choose the right thing, end quote, because he thinks he's got to choose a particular feeling, which he cannot actually do, then he feels as if he is unable to do what God has commanded because he is interpreting the law to mean that he must have certain feelings when the law does not command any such thing. And so people get the idea that they are unable. Now that's just a, a sort of an existential way, uh, experiential way that people are enforced in their mind in the thinking that people are unable to obey the law of God because they think the law of God is saying something that it isn't and then they think that they are unable because they, are they think they're commanded to do something that they're not really commanded to do. And then as well, there were other things that were involved. If you want to try to put down a heretic, which in, um, in, in the case of Augustine, unfortunately, one of the things that he did want to do was to try to put down a heretic. Um, the, what were they called? The Donatists? Um, when you want to do something like that, and yet you have to deal with the free will of man, it is very difficult if you believe in free will, to force someone to believe the way you want them to believe. But if God moves upon people and makes them be saved, then we have a divine precedent that God makes people be saved, therefore we can make people be saved. We can make people recant of their heresy. You see? And uh, unfortunately that was carried out actually into the history with Augustine and the church used. It was a very convenient doctrine for the church at that time to be able to wage war, literally, physically, against people to try to make them recant and to make them uh, believe what the church at large was believing at that time. I might say, too, that these people were not heretics, but were God-fearing people who just happened to, to disagree with the authority structure at the time and were really lovely Christians and laid down their lives in really beautiful ways. And there were thousands of them, thousands and thousands of them that were martyred by the church at the instigation of, of Augustine. This is all plain, of course, in history. There's a good book that we have here in the library called, uh, uh, what's Morris Marston's book? 
God's strategy in human history. God's strategy in human history. One of the um, appendix on free will lays out the story with all the documentation. It's a tragedy. Yeah, it's a really sad thing to read, but I think it's important for us to face that that people have done things like this in history in the name of God. And uh, another thing might be mentioned that the same kinds of attitudes were prevalent um, not only in the time of Augustine, which is quite early, but also later with us in the times of Luther, Calvin, so forth. The same ideas were, were prevalent, maybe not carried out to, to as great an extent. And the person might say, well, that was the way they thought then. And a lot of their thinking was structured around that way of thinking. Well, I'd, I'd like to ask the question then, why the Anabaptists were um, nonviolent and believed that you should not force a person uh, to believe what you believe at the same time that others were saying, yes, you force a person to believe. I believe the difference there was doctrine, the theology that was involved. Because at the same time, it wasn't just, and in the same cultures, and in the same setting, under the same government, there were people who said exactly the opposite. So it must have had to do, not with the time, culture, and way of thinking, but with the doctrine that they held. I think we're going to have to stop now.